Welcome back to Certain Comfort in Uncertain Times, a look at the book of Revelation that we are filming during the COVID-19 pandemic in the year 2020. As you can see from the Christmas tree behind me, we are filming this episode uh, in December. We are about a week and a half away from Christmas uh, as I film this. And we are, so we are in the season of Advent. Uh, one of my favorite seasons within the church year, season where we uh, anticipate and await the arrival of the Messiah. And that is what the word Advent means. It means arrival. And so we are in a season to prepare us for the arrival of the Messiah. And so, of course, we look back to his first arrival, but we also look forward to his still yet to come arrival. And we see that in the passage we'll look at today as we have journeyed through the book of Revelation and we are coming to the end of the book. What we see today in Revelation 21 is very much the final advent, the final coming of the Messiah to recreate the world, to bring a new heaven and a new earth, a new creation. And we are going to look at how that can give us certain comfort in uncertain times. And so as we have been doing all throughout the book, we are not going to get hung up on all the minutia of trying to figure out symbols, uh, what those one-to-one correlations are, but instead looking at uh, 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 an overview of the chapter, a bird's eye view of what we know from, for certain from this chapter that can give us that certain comfort in uncertain times. And so I'm going to read Revelation chapter 21. I encourage you to follow along if you have a copy of the scriptures in front of you. And then we'll look at uh, three things that this chapter tells us about the new creation that should give us that certain comfort. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more, because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. He also said, Write, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came and spoke with me. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. 
He then carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. Her radiance was like a precious jewel, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. The city had a massive high wall with 12 gates. Twelve angels were at the gates. The names of the 12 tribes of Israel's sons were inscribed on the gates. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. The city wall had 12 foundations, and the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb were on the foundations. The one who spoke with me had a golden measuring rod to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out in a square. Its length and width are the same. He measured the city with the rod at 12,000 stadia. Its length, width, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall 144 cubits according to human measurement, which the angel used. The building material of its wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the city wall were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first foundation is jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, and the seventh chrysolite. The eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates are twelve pearls. Each individual gate was made of a single pearl. The main street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. I did not see a temple in it, because the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never close by day because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. This chapter is an incredible passage of Scripture. But I think to understand what it's trying to tell us, the comfort it's trying to give us, we need to understand what the, the, the purpose of the chapter is. And again, I think we miss the point of the chapter, just like we missed the point of the book, if we get all hung up on trying to uh, trying to interpret the symbols, trying to to lay out measurements, trying to get all the minutia down, and and taking it with a very hyper and wooden literalism that misses the the point of what uh, John is trying to say, the the point of the vision that John is given, and so we. To understand the goal of this chapter, we really need to remember the context of the book. And this book is written to churches, both in the first century and in every century since, who are living in uncertain times, who are living through wars and persecution and pandemics, who are suffering, who are going about their day-to-day life not knowing what each day may hold, not knowing where their next meal might come from, not knowing if they will be arrested and put on trial and executed for their faith, 
not knowing if their loved ones will survive the next day, the next week, the next month. It is written to those churches, which in the year 2020 includes our churches, even though in many years God has preserved us from some of that. And so those are the churches he's writing to. And so what John is giving us and what God is, is, is giving John for us is this view of what is to come. It, it really is getting our eyes off of our circumstances and on to the hope that lies before us. What Revelation 21 is trying to help us with is what Paul calls us to in Colossians 3 verses 1 through 4 where he says, If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. John is helping us fix our eyes on the things above, to fix our eyes on the things yet to come, to eagerly anticipate when Christ will appear and when we will also appear with him in glory. He's helping us do what the author of Hebrews tells us to do in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where he tells us to lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He's not only helping us fix our eyes on Jesus, but he's helping us emulate Jesus. It was for the joy set before Jesus that he endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so as we face our individual crosses on the day-to-day basis, here in Revelation chapter 21, we, are, we have joy set before us. We are told what that joy is that lies ahead for us if we endure So that for that joy, we might endure our cross, despising its shame, and one day sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. This past Sunday in an Advent message here at the Colony Chapel, I preached on John 22, John chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. And John 3.30, of course, is the, the famous verse where John the Baptist says about Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. And uh, the early church father, the great preacher, John Chrysostom, uh, interpreted that phrase in the context of glory, that we need, that John was saying that he needed uh, Jesus's glory to increase in his life and his own self-seeking glory to decrease. And I quoted this uh, portion from his sermon on John chapter 3 verse 30 that I think applies here again to help us see what John is doing. And John Chrysostom tells us that the the way we stop seeking our own glory and start seeking Christ's glory is to set our eyes on Christ's glory. And he says, For as we despise the riches of earth when we look to the other riches, as we condemn this life when we think of that far better than this, so we shall be enabled to spit on this world's glory when we know of another far more august than it. 
which is glory indeed. One is a thing vain and empty, has the name without the reality. But that other, which is from heaven, is true and has to give its praise angels and archangels and the Lord of archangels. Or rather, I should say that it has men as well. Now, if you look to that theater, learn what crowns are there. Transport yourself into the applauses which come from there. Never will earthly things be able to hold you, nor when they come will you deem them great, nor when they are away seek after them. For even in earthly palaces, none of the guards who stand around the king, neglecting to please him that wears the diadem and sits upon the throne, troubles himself about the voices of daws or the noise of flies and gnats flying and buzzing about him. And good report from men is no better than these. Knowing then the worthlessness of human things, let us collect our all into treasuries that cannot be spoiled. Let us seek that glory which is abiding and immovable, which may we all attain through the grace and loving kindness of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom and with whom to the Father and the Holy Spirit be glory now and ever and world without end. Amen. That is what Revelation 21 is doing. It is fixing our eyes on the glory which comes down from heaven, that we might not seek the glory here on earth. And again, in in the year 2020, we've not only had the pandemic, we've had societal unrest, protests, a contentious presidential election. We as Christians have been so tempted to be dragged into seeking earthly glory. And we've talked about that for the past several months as we've repeatedly seen in the book of Revelation that the, the readers, the believers are called to follow the lamb who was slain in the way of the cross. And now we are not only Uh, We are no longer called to follow the Lamb in the way of the cross because now we have the joy set before us that helps us endure that way of the cross. And one further note before we jump into our main points, it is very important for us to notice what is going on in this chapter. To notice that our future, despite what is so often taught in churches, despite what is so often seen in depictions of heaven. Our future is not to live as disembodied angels strumming harps while floating around on clouds. Rather, what scripture as a whole teaches, and specifically what Revelation chapter 21 teaches, is that we should, in the words of the Nicene Creed, look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. We are not destined to be disembodied, playing harps, living as angels, floating on clouds. We are destined to be re-embodied. We are destined to be resurrected from the dead and our immaterial being reunited with our material being. As N.T. Wright has put it, the Christian hope is not properly life after death, but rather life after life after death. Or as Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it in his ethics, the human being is a bodily being and remains so in eternity as well. Bodiliness and being human belong indivisibly 
together. And that is what we see in Revelation chapter 21. We do not see disembodied spirits. We do not see angels playing harps floating around on clouds. We see resurrected, re-embodied people living on a new earth with their creator. And so with those two things being said, there are three main points that I want to take from this chapter. Three things that Revelation chapter 21 tells us about our future, tells us about the joy that is set before us. And the first is that the new creation will be characterized by the end of our sin, suffering, and sorrow. The new creation will be characterized by the end of our sin, suffering, and sorrow. We see this right off the bat in verse 1, where John sees a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. But then he throws in this little phrase at the end, uh, he sees a heaven and an earth coming down, but then he says, and the sea was no more. And I know this can be somewhat crushing for people. Now, we are located in the Jersey Shore area. Many people in this area have grown up going to the shore, uh, grown up with, with beach days, uh, love the ocean and love the beach. And the fact that there might not be an ocean and might not be a beach in the new heaven and new earth can be extremely disappointing uh, for many. But that's not necessarily what John is saying. He's not saying there's no water. He's not saying there's no ocean. Again, the point of this chapter is not to give us a literal point by point. This is what our eternity looks like. This is what the new heaven looks like. This is what the new earth looks like. You can calculate it. You can measure it. You can picture it in your, in your mind. That's not the point. When he says the sea was no more, he is letting us know that sin has been defeated. The sea for ancient cultures, including in the first century, was an agent of death and chaos. Uh, even in the book of Revelation we've seen, it's from the sea that the beast comes. And so when John says that the sea was no more, he's not necessarily trying to tell us that there will be no beach days in the new earth. Rather, what he's telling us is that the enemies of God and of his people have been subdued. The dragon and the beast have been done away with and they will not return Again, there is no chaos. There is no sin. There is no death in the new earth. And of course, he goes on to spell that out in even more detail. In verses, uh, in, in verse four, he says he will, about God, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. All of our suffering that is the result of sin will be done away with because sin will be done away with. And God himself, as we'll see later on, will be the one who wipes away every tear from our eyes. He will comfort us and we will never suffer again. And that is incredibly good news. In any day, in any age, in any year, but especially in the year 2020. I saw a stat a few days ago where it was uh, the, the top 10 deadliest days in, in U.S. history. Um, 
based on number of deaths by a single cause. And the first two or three were, were big um, military or terroristic events. I think the Battle of Antietam was up there, 9-11 was up there. Uh, but then I think numbers three through seven or three through eight were all days in the past couple of weeks and people who have died from COVID-19. The sheer amount of death that we have seen this year compared with recent years has been almost overwhelming. And then you consider the suffering, the other kinds of suffering the pandemic has brought about, jobs lost, businesses closed, people separated from their loved ones, uh, people who have died and funerals haven't been able to be attended, uh, people who have died without being able to see their loved ones before they pass. There's been such an incredible amount of suffering and then all of the divisiveness and unrest and, and hatred between peoples. And this year has just been marked by suffering, by tears, by sadness, by grief, by sorrow. And so especially in a year like 2020, it is good news to know that our suffering, our sorrow will be no more. That we will be comforted. That there will be a day when death is fully and finally defeated and we will never have to face the prospect of losing a loved one again. We will never have to face the prospect of grieving again. And that is the, the comfort that we are given is not just sin that is done away with, but the effects of sin are done away with. But then it's not even just sin and the effects of sin, but it's even those disordered desires and longings that we have that are done away with. What he goes on to tell us is that we will be fully and finally satisfied. He says in verse 6, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. We will no longer have that uh, internal thirst that longs for things that is never really satisfied. And again, we experience that often, but we've especially experienced that in 2020, and we especially experienced it that in this time of year. We are in Advent, the, the season leading up to Christmas. And there's so much longing for Christmas, uh, especially for children, but even as adults, we all look forward to, to getting something. We all look forward to getting together with family. We all look forward to, to an aspect of the holiday. And then the holiday comes and goes and it never lives up to what it promised. And maybe on that day we're satisfied for a short time, but then a day or two later and the, uh, the shine is off and we're just as dissatisfied as we were before Christmas. That thirst returns. And what we are told in Revelation 21 is that there is coming a day when that thirst will not return, when we will drink of the springs of the water of life and be satisfied where there will be no more longing that goes unfulfilled. And so whatever it is that we're longing for, whether we're longing for a change in our circumstances, we're longing for a relationship, we're longing for a loved one, we're longing for a job opportunity, we're longing for whatever it is. And maybe we get it and that longing eventually returns or maybe we don't and that longing goes completely unfulfilled but we are comforted with the fact that there is coming a day when that longing will be satisfied, that thirst will be quenched, and we will never thirst 
again. And so we are comforted with the fact that sin and suffering and sorrow are done away with. There's coming a day when they will be gone and we will be satisfied. But then he goes on in verses 7 to 8 and and all of a sudden in the midst of this hope, he seems to, uh, to give a harsh word. And he says in verses 7 and 8, the one who conquers will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. But the cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And so in the midst of this comfort, in the midst of this hope, we're we're given a warning. And then we're given a consequence for those who don't heed the warning. And it seems almost out of place. It seems like it doesn't fit with what this chapter is doing as a whole. Uh, but I think what we see John doing here, uh, we, uh, what helps us interpret it, is actually another one of John's writings that uses a similar theme. And that's the Gospel of John in chapter 4. And in John chapter 4, the fourth chapter of John's Gospel, is where Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well. And uh, the point I want to make here was actually not something I noticed on my own. Actually, one of our recent interns uh, here who had gone through the, the program, I had done some counseling with him, and he actually was the one who brought this to my attention, that uh, in John chapter 4, verses 13, Jesus is speaking with the Samaritan woman at the well, and he says, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. And so you see that the theme is very similar. John had uh, just talked about that Jesus had said, I will give freely to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life in in Revelation 21.6. And here in John 4, Jesus is also promising that the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. And so the Samaritan woman responds in John chapter 4, verse 15, Sir, the woman said to him, Give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. And so she doesn't know 100% what Jesus is talking about, but this idea that I can drink and never be thirsty again is appealing. And so she asks him, give me this water. I don't want to thirst again. Give me the, the, the water of eternal life, the spring of eternal life that will satisfy my thirst, satisfy my longing. And notice what Jesus tells her in verse 16. Go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. Jesus' answer doesn't seem to make sense With the request, she says, give me this water. And he says, go call your husband. And what uh, our intern pointed out to me is that Jesus was responding to her request. That she wants the water. She wants to be satisfied. But before she could take the water that satisfies, she needs to put down the thing that she she had been running to, to be satisfied. And so the needs that the, the need within her that Jesus would meet were at the, the present time being met by, by her husband, by these relationships she had with these men. And Jesus points out it was not just this man she was living with, but previous husbands 
as well. And so Jesus was telling her, if you want the water that will satisfy you, you need to stop picking up the, 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 or going to the wells that won't satisfy. You need to stop going to those wells that keep recreating the thirst and come to the well that will satisfy. And I think that principle is at play in Revelation chapter 21, where Jesus says, I will give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. And then verse 7, it's the reminder, the one who conquers will inherit these things. I will be his God and he will be my son. It's the reminder for those of us who believe, hey, don't go after those old wells. Keep coming to the spring of eternal life. And then verse 8 is uh, our examples of those who, who don't come to the spring of eternal life, the ones who keep going after those false wells, that keep going after those wells that, that give water that don't satisfy. The cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars. They are the ones who, instead of coming to the spring of eternal life, have kept going to, to relationships, kept going to anger, kept going to addiction, kept going to whatever those other wells are. And so Jesus is saying, there, yes, there will come a day when there will be no sin, no suffering, no sorrow. There will be a day when there will be full satisfaction. But it is only for those who find their satisfaction in Him. Ultimately, what one day waits for us is the full deliverance of what we already have in part today. And so if we want that hope of being fully and finally satisfied by the springs of eternal life, then we need to go to the spring of eternal life today. And we need to go to Jesus today and receive today in, 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 fully, but a portion of what we will one day have in abundance. One day we will never run out of. And we will enjoy full satisfaction with no sin, no sorrow, and no suffering. And so the new creation will be characterized by the end of sin, suffering, and sorrow. Secondly, the new creation will be characterized by the glorification of the saints. The new creation will be characterized by the glorification of the saints. In verses 9 and 10, we see another example of, of these visions that we've seen throughout the book where a voice or an angel tells John to look at something and John looks and sees something different. Uh, and so we encountered this earlier in the book when John was told to, to behold the Lion of Judah and John looks to see the Lion of Judah and instead sees a lamb that was slain. And we've seen it a couple times, other times throughout the book and we come to chapter 21 and we see it again in verses 9 and 10 where one of the angels tells John, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And then he carries him away to see the, the bride, the wife of the lamb. And John looks and instead sees the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. And so this holy city, this new Jerusalem, is not a literal city that is coming down. It is the bride of the lamb. And we, we see this 
uh, we, we see the bride coming down and it's the arrayed like a, the holy city, Jerusalem. It is arrayed with God's glory. And there's another sign further down that tells us that this is not a literal city, that this is, this, this is, the, 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 this is the bride, These are the, this is the people of God, uh, the corporate, uh, all believers throughout all of history. And that's the measurements that we see down in verses 16 and 17. Uh, the measurements are 12,000 stadia and 144 cubits. And those correlate to the numbers of the sealed in Revelation 7, verses 4 through 8. And again, we said back then that those numbers weren't literal. Instead, they, instead they were symbolic. And that was the church that it was referring to. It was the people of God that it was referring to. And the same numbers are then brought here into Revelation 21 with the 12,000 cubits, uh, 12,000 stadia and 144 cubits. So again, this is the bride coming down. This is not a literal city coming down. And then John jumps into this very illustrious description. And uh, in some regard, we're not really supposed to, again, nail down all of these symbols. Uh, Instead, this is, as we said a couple chapters ago, the correlation, the contrast with the harlot of the beast, who at the time, the harlot of the beast was very, uh, was described as being very finely dressed and being so beautiful looking, John's actually pulled away so that he doesn't start worshiping the harlot. And when we last saw the bride, the bride was, uh, was adorned very simply. But here we see her fully dressed for her marriage to the Lamb. And that is the description uh, with all these jewels as he describes the walls and the gates and the foundations and all of these things, all these different jewels that are brought in, all these fine gems that make up this foundation. Again, he is not describing a literal uh, city, a literal fortification, a literal structure built with these different jewels. Instead, he is describing the glory of, of the Lamb's bride. He is describing how beautiful and glorious the bride of the Lamb is. And again, this should be hope for us. This should be something that we look forward to. Because 2020 has not only been divisive for America as a country, it has been very divisive for the American church. And the pandemic and other Things have, in some regards, brought out the best of the church as the church has ministered to those in need. But in other ways, it has brought out the worst of the church. As Christians have uh, slandered each other, slandered those outside the church, have gone to war over secondary or tertiary, even less important issues, have prioritized politics over the gospel. Uh, And you can look at the church in 2020 and, and think, like, th- this is, is the bride of the Lamb. This is who Jesus is wed to. This is all that we have. And so, Revelation 21 then pulls us away from the church as we see it today. Um, and the church is very much like us as individual Christians. Uh, we are positionally holy and practically getting there. 
And the church is very much the same way. And so what we are given here is a glimpse of the church glorified. We are given a glimpse of the church as she will one day be. Holy and glorious and beautiful. Prepared to wed the Lamb. We see the church in her, her already but not yet state. We are given the glimpse of that not yet. We are given the comfort that no matter how disastrous the church might look on any given day, no matter how disheveled, no matter how ugly, no matter how spiteful and sinful, no matter what the church looks like today, that in Revelation 21, that is who she is. She is beautiful and glorious, uh, dressed in the, the finest jewels given to her by her groom. And this should be the certain comfort in the uncertain times. It is something to strive for. It is something to pray for. It is something to ask God to give us little by little, day by day, as the church grows in addition to individual Christians growing. But it is also something that we have hope that that is what we will one day be. The church will be completed. The church will be glorified. And throughout the New Testament, the church is described as a building, uh, being built up as a temple for God. And so that, I think, is why John uses that, that imagery. That's why he's given the vision, uh, not of people, but of a structure being built. Because he's seeing the completed, the completed vi- version of what the New Testament speaks of. In Revelation 21, the church is finished being built. It is now completed. And the bride is dressed and ready to marry the Lamb. And so the new creation will be characterized by the glorification of the saints, the church perfected and glorified. And then finally, the new creation will be characterized by the presence of the Savior. The new creation will be characterized by the presence of the Savior. We see this first at the beginning of the chapter, back in verse 3. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them, and will be their God. And then we see it again at the end of the chapter as the city comes down. Then it says in verses 22 and following, I did not see a temple in it, because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, because the glory of God illuminates it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never close by day, because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the great promise of all of Scripture. This is what all of creation has been headed towards since the very early chapters of Genesis. Emmanuel, God with us. That is is what we long for. That is what we are promised. 
And it's fitting, therefore, that we come to Revelation 21 during the Advent season. When we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Because this is what Revelation 21 assures us. As we are going through a year filled with unrest, as we are going through a global pandemic, as we are going through economic crisis, as we are suffering physically and relationally, this is what we look for and what we are promised, that He has come. He is with us and He is coming again. God with us is our hope. And this might seem like something that's obvious, but so often it's not. Because we so often actually put our focus on on the means to the end instead of the end itself. Not trying to, we focus on good things, but specifically the forgiveness of sins. The way we so often preach the forgiveness of sins is that that's an end in and of itself. So that's what you need. You're a sinner and you need to be forgiven and then period. And we kind of end it there with forgiveness. And although, yes, that's true, we are sinners and we need to be forgiven. Forgiveness itself is not the end. It's a means to an end. The end is fellowship with God. That is what we had back in the garden. In Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve take taste of the fruit and sin, and God comes down to walk with them in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hide from Him. They, they walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day. That they had fellowship with God that was broken by their sin. And all throughout Scripture, we've been uh, promised that that will one day be restored. That promise that we see fulfilled in verse 3, that God's dwelling is with humanity. He will live with them. They will be His peoples, and God Himself will be with them and will be their God. That is a promise repeated throughout Scripture. That is what God has been restoring, is fellowship with Him. He's been recreating a people and recreating creation so that he could be with them and dwell with them and be his God and they would be his people. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Our chief end is not to have our sins forgiven. We need that. Amen. But that is a means to the end, which is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To be restored to fellowship with Him. And the cross was His means of doing that. And at the cross, this has all been inaugurated. But because we are still living in the sinful world, we are often, uh, we struggle to live in light of the cross instead of to live in light of our circumstances. We struggle uh, to maintain that fellowship with God because we don't have that full unfettered access yet. We have full unfettered access in the spirit, but we are also still living in sinful flesh. And so Revelation 21 reminds us that we will one day have that fellowship back. God will dwell with us. His full presence among us, and He will be our God, and we will be His people. 
No more will we have these mediated, his mediated presence that we've seen throughout. Fellowship is broken in Genesis 3, but God continues to be faithful to his end and give his mediating presence. The pillar of, of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, dwelling in the tabernacle and in the temple. Uh, John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus, in Jesus, the word tabernacled among us. Uh, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Uh, believers are called the temple of the Holy Spirit. The church as a whole, again, is called the temple of God. And so we've had these mediated presences, the, the mediated presence of God in his grace. But one day we will have the unmediated presence of God dwelling among us. In Revelation 21, God finally completes his plan of redemption bringing to fulfillment all of the promises from Genesis 3 right through Revelation, coming back to earth to dwell among his people, to be their God, and to have them be his people. Emmanuel, God with us, is our hope. When we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and during the Advent season, uh, we are not just uh, thinking back to the Jews longing for the Messiah to come. It is our earnest hope as well. We are longing for God to come, for Emmanuel to truly be with us. And that is our hope, and that is what Revelation 21 promises us. It reminds us, again, it fixes our eyes on what our true hope is. Our hope ultimately is not a cure for the coronavirus. Our hope ultimately is not a restored economy. Our hope is not to make America great again. Our hope is not anything of the earth. Our full hope is only Emmanuel, God with us. And that is the certain comfort that Revelation 21 offers us. Not just that sin will be done away with, not just that we will one day be glorified, but that God will be with us. We will have fellowship with God, full, unmediated fellowship with our Creator and our Savior. The, there is no need for a temple. There is no need for a separate dwelling place because the one who is on the throne and the Lamb will dwell with us. And so I am going to close. It is, uh, we are about a week and a half away from, from Christmas as I record this. Well, it'll be only a few days left before Christmas when it releases. And so I do just want to read the four, first four verses of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, because that is what this final advent in Revelation 21 is about. And as we read Revelation 21, our hearts should cry out, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. The song is, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. O come, thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save and give them victory o'er the grave. O come, thou dayspring from on high and cheer us by thy drawing nigh. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. 
O come, thou key of David, come and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high and close the path to misery. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Thank you for joining us for Revelation chapter 21 and come back next week as we finish up our series with the final chapter of Revelation and the final chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22.